Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 31st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Armin Zildjian, the VP of sales at Drift, one of the fastest growing companies in the area. I don't know if his last name looks familiar, but if your sales team has a gong in the office, Odds are it has his last name on it, as he is part of the Zildjian family tree, the famous maker of cymbals that are played by pretty much every major drummer out there, from the Rolling Stones to the Foo Fighters. Armin has created his own legacy in the tech industry by having built up sales organizations at companies like LogMeIn, GrabCAD, and Dine, which all have had an exit, either an IPO or an acquisition. Based on this common theme of success, I was really excited to chat with him about his expertise around building out high-performing sales organizations for tech companies. So in this episode, we cover lots of topics, like Armin's experience building out sales at each company, Drift and how they are creating the category of conversational marketing, the unique structure of the sales team at Drift and what he looks for when hiring salespeople for his team, advice for founders who are setting up sales and when they should bring in a VP of sales, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. I just want to give a shout out to Alex Kalafi. He is the man behind the scenes of this podcast. Alex is one part writer and one part podcast producer for Venture Fizz. So it's likely that you've read some of his great stories on our site, but without him, this podcast wouldn't exist. So thank you, Alex. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Armin. Armin, thanks for joining us. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about your last name, Zildjian. So when I was growing up, one of my best friends uh, from my neighborhood was an avid drummer. And every major drummer uh, out there played something called a Zildjian Cymbals, right? Yeah. So I think when I first learned of your name was, um, I probably saw a press release of when you, when you joined GrabCAD. And I kind of looked at it, I'm like, wow, that's like the same last name as the Cymbal Company. But I didn't really put two and two together. But then as I think I learned more about you over time, I, I realized this is the same family tree, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Everybody has that reaction to Like, what is that guy doing in software sales? Like, <laughs> yeah. I like the Rolling Stones and Foo Fighters, like every major drummer plays Zildjian cymbals. And I have this other philosophy that you can either um, confirm or disqualify that when you walk into every tech company, there's the little Zildjian gong that people bang once they hit a sale. So yeah. were you the product manager that brought that idea to your family? <laughs> good synergy between my profession and and my heritage sure uh we i have to confess we don't have a small one though we have we have a 30 inch gong and, and in our san francisco office in fact the building has now complained several times that there's a repeated gonging sound from our, uh, from our, from our office space so that is awesome so so was it so uh, so this is the heritage though like how did um like your family started this company yeah, years and years ago. It's a it's a crazy story, and being born into this family, it's just it's just a, a, a I'm super privileged to 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 have this heritage. But uh, I have to confess that I don't have much much say in it. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, great 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 great. How many ever generations it is? Uh, back yep. in 1923, there was an alchemist by the name of Avdi Zildjian um, out in the outskirts of Istanbul, Turkey, somewhere um, that. Uh, was fooling around with a bunch of metals trying to figure out how to make gold and um, came up with this alloy that um, that uh, sounded pretty cool and so went to the sultan and, and so i guess my heritage is more like the sales side of it right which is like i got this thing i gotta sell to somebody that i can get some money for right so <laughs> uh, so he went to the sultan and they used it initially uh to to ward off um 
attackers and or in battle to scare um, uh, their opponent by making the, the, the charging force sound bigger, larger, and more scary than they, they originally were. So it was actually the first use which is kind of a little bit of a kin, I guess, in the San Francisco office. It's scaring off the people in the building right now. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how it started. And then obviously generations and generations later, my grandfather and his brother brought, uh, brought and with their uncle brought the business from, from Turkey to, to Boston. And they, they built in the ovens that they made the symbols, they made candy during the day. And then at night they would make the symbols in the oven, in the same ovens and started to peddle their wares. And, uh, you know, luckily the, the jazz craze came around and that's really what sparked the business to become what it is today. Prior to that, it was orchestral, um, mostly instruments, which, which is a great business, but certainly not as prolific as rock and roll uh, and jazz bands uh, made it be. Yeah, absolutely. Such a cool story. That could be a whole different podcast discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So going to you, uh, you graduated with a criminology degree. Yeah. So, so how did you get into the tech industry? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I took criminology wanting to either get into law enforcement, FBI, that, or, or become um, some, sign, some, some sort of attorney focused in a, in a particular area. Um, and uh, when I graduated from college, I looked at the, you know, I took the LSATs and then took, took a look at what uh, law school costs uh, were and then what, what wages uh, you could earn after, after law school and thought, geez, that math doesn't really make sense. So that uh, was 1995, 96. So the tech boom had just started. I had a couple of friends that were in, that were in the, the tech field. Two of my roommates from college actually were computer science majors. And we fooled around on the internet, the burgeoning internet in 93, 92, um, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so I had some, a little bit of exposure to it, but I didn't really know anything about technology. I started at a company called Rentex, which was a computer rental company. It's still around today. And we rented uh, hardware, uh, both you know, uh, projectors and, and LC, LCD projectors and, and laptops and things for trade shows and trainings and things like that. And that's where I first learned about operating systems and RAM and all the other, uh, all the other stuff that you learned uh, back then. And uh, realized quickly that software was where people were making money and not hardware and uh, began my career uh, that way. And so... Um, much like I think most salespeople, uh, they have a dream, they have a vision uh, of what they might want to do, um, but they're sort of competitive, uh, driving to to make some money and be in control of their destiny. And that's where uh, sales sort of presents itself to a lot, of, I think, of salespeople in the beginning. And um, and so it did that for me and, and I made a career out of it. And then over time, you ended up joining uh, Sophos, right? So you were in the um, security software industry, if my memory is correct about right, that. Right, right, right. So yeah, I was the second sales rep Sophos hired in the US. They're a British-based antivirus company. And I sort of had east of the Mississippi and the other guy had west of the Mississippi and we grew that business. Uh, ended up leaving. Uh, I was a sales leader of about 15, 15 sales folks by the time I left six, seven years later. And then joined um, LogMeIn, which was doing about $5 million and I built um, the account management strategy there. Uh, so we, I grew that business from about $5 million to 80, uh, roughly adding about five, 10 million additional dollars in upsell, cross-sell to the business. And then, um, and then moved over to London and managed uh, and led the, the sales and marketing strategy across EMEA for LogMeIa um, and left the business when they were doing probably about 170, $180 million and gotten public and, and had a pretty successful exit out of there. And then Stratus uh, GrabCAD, which was a mechanical engineering software company that was bringing um, file sharing and versioning to the cloud. 
Um, and uh, we got bought by a 3D printing company about a year later and then uh, went over to Dyn, which is a, DN a 12 year old DNS company that was changing the way that um, businesses connected to businesses through uh, increasing the connectivity um, and the pathing that they took from end user to their infrastructure. And we were bought by Oracle um, uh, just a couple of years ago. And then I came to Drift. So there's a common theme there, right? So log me in, IPO, GrabCat acquisition, Dyn acquired by Oracle, right? So uh, needless to say, you've got a lot of uh, success under your belt of building out not only uh, sales teams, but also customer retention, right? So like the, the post-sale, making sure that they're getting their value and obviously renewing or whatever the, the model is, right? Yeah, it's actually the most, uh, I think that's uh, the, the breadth of my experience in terms of you know doing field sales and enterprise, enterprise sales and SMB uh, inside sales and account management and renewal and retention. And I even did some e-commerce as well uh, in, in sort of the freemium model over at LogMeIn for a bit of time. And I think that the nice thing about that is not necessarily I have all that under my belt, but the interrelatedness and the options available to from a go to market strategy, I think it helps kind of figure out what the patterns uh, are out there that that are most successful and be able to take a business when you get into it and understand what's available to you from a go to market and start to fiddle around with those levers to find like the right path, um, because each business sort of comes um, with probably the same starting point, which is it's a bunch of tech founders that want, don't want to have salespeople, uh, which is a pretty common theme, right? Like they, they think, no, I want the Atlassian model. They, they grew to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars without salespeople and, uh, and tech founders, I think have a tendency to like, think that they can do it on their own. Right. Um, and then there's probably over time an appreciation for what salespeople and leaders bring to the table. Uh, and then it's the, the typical variation then is, Oh, we're going to start with an inside sales model, and I, and I always ask like, well, why? And and well, everybody else does it, right? It's the same playbook that everybody tries to do. I said, well, what's the who's the target? What's the what's the price point? Um, what's the buying process? What's that what's that buyer used to doing when they buy something? And is there a way or a path to automate that as much as possible? So, although I've led sales teams uh, of all different sizes, I always look for like what's the most efficient way to go to market that, you know, doesn't require humans. I, I kind of agree. Like the, the, the faster we can get uh, humans out of the way to be able to purchase software, the better. And there's always going to be room for salespeople when you talk about bigger deals or more strategic deals or something like that. But you always want to optimize for the fastest path and most, in my opinion, sort of velocity. So. Well, and I guess along those lines, I don't think log me in gets enough credit for, I don't know if you can say the word uh, invented the freemium model, but they definitely had a history. Like, so Sean Ellis, right? Like almost like created this whole revolution of what's common today. Yeah. Yeah. Between Sean and uh, Mike Simon, who was the CEO, um, those guys in, in my book anyway, I don't know if anybody else lay, lay claim to creating freemium, um, but those guys were pretty close to sort of ground zero for the freemium model and really turning it into a bit like lots of people tried it, but, I think these guys got it right. Like I would wake up in the morning and there would be um, thousands and thousands of dollars booked from me overnight, right? And it's mm -hmm. that when you get that kind of boost, um, both from a customer-based perspective, cross-sell and upsell opportunity, and just have a little bit more air cover from a revenue perspective, you could do really cool stuff um, with a business when you've got that kind of, like, uh, like I said, sort of groundswell. And the other thing that I admired about them was their customer 
acquisition strategies and how they were always one of the highest grossing uh, paid apps in the app store when it first you know released for the iPhone. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah, that that was a that was sort of a turbo boost as we went public. Um, in fact, the investors watched um, almost like we had a it was a small part of our business, which was this ignition business, which was remote access from your iPhone. Um, but they almost anchored our value for a period of time just based on the acquisition of uh, new unique visitors or new unique users from the iStore, right? And gave us huge credit for doing that. Um, which again, at the end of the day, the acquisition model was 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 fire, right? Like it just you can't get much better um, than how they had that set up. And then we had sort of tapped into a bunch of different veins beyond just that model. We had the the free access model without the iPhone, and then the MSP model. And so we had a pretty diverse, you know, go-to-market strategy that it seemed like fed from the freemium model, um, really kind of turbocharged each one of them in their own way. Fast forward to today, you are at Drift, which uh, a lot of people know of Drift. Uh, obviously, two great founders started the company, and it's been a rocket ship in the Boston tech ecosystem. But um, let's take a step back. What does Drift do, just in case some of our audience isn't aware? Yeah, so we created the category called conversational marketing. And what that means is, you know, from the beginning of time, a sale didn't happen without a conversation happening between a salesperson and a buyer, right? And throughout the last, you know, 15 years or so, um, with the advent of driving, driving, the concept of driving people to your site and having them fill out forms and then being qualified by a BDR and then finally getting a booked time with a, with a salesperson. What we've done throughout this marketing automation revolution is really push the buyer and the seller further apart from each other. And so there's got to be all these checkpoints along the way, whether it be lead scoring, filling out a form, band qualification, or whatever else you want to call the, the, the milestones along the journey. But there's just a whole lot more stuff that has to happen before a seller can talk to a buyer. And the three actors that ha that happen to interact with that model, the marketer, the buyer, and the seller, all are dissatisfied with the experience that that provides to them, right? Marketers don't get nearly as much credit um, for the leads that they drive to the site because they require somebody to fill out a form, which they don't have control over. And they have, and they also require somebody to qualify that lead, which they largely, to, to some degree, don't have a, a, of control over. And then they wait for, they really wait for those things to happen to get points and credit for the right traffic going to their site. Sellers get um, these leads sometimes very late in the game because the, the machinery has to work before they get to the salesperson. And the buyer comes to the site hoping to get some information along their buyer journey to understand to what degree the product or service provides a value and or solution to their problem, but they can't get an answer without you know giving up their anonymity and um, really sort of uh, going through this process that might take days. Um, and what happens there, therein is uh, you know, either the priority wanes or uh, they end up getting in touch with a competitor who might be more inclined to engage faster, right? And what we believe through conversational marketing is that we're bringing, the, we're bringing through the engagement strategy of bots and, um, and chat and uh, calendar meetings to try to close the gap on the time that it takes for a seller to talk to a buyer. And so what we're trying to find is uh, signals in the visitors to be able to engage with them in a meaningful way, uh, even when humans aren't available, but still provide the human touch uh, when, when and if that visitor um, finds it uh, useful for them. And when there's a, a 
potential high value target on the site uh, that the salesperson wants to engage with. Right. And I mean, the, the whole way that buyers are on that journey to ultimately make a purchase, it has changed so much where you expect that that buyer has done so much homework before, you know, five, 10 years ago, where it's like, okay, tell me about your product. Now, you know, through all the research of online and all the studies, you can pretty much get to the point where you know a good idea of what the company does and probably have some questions before you want right. to actually make the decision, but you don't have to go through that entire sales process anymore. Right. At the end of the day, buyers come to your website to close the gap of understanding and they have X amount of understanding, whether it's 30%, 50%, 70%. There's a bunch of studies on how much percentage people are down the buyer's journey. And it doesn't matter, right? The What matters is the, the seller's job now is to close the gap of understanding and impression of value and to be able to help the, the visitor discover what the ultimate value of, of implementing the product would be rather than I've got, which the old way we believe is like, well, I'm going to qualify you before I let you talk to somebody that can answer that question. Mm -hmm. It just seems backwards now. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So along those lines, so like you're building out the sales team at Drift. Yeah. Um, so, so what does that look like? Like what's the the sales team generally, like how's it structured? And yeah, very what? different. Uh, so I walked in and David, you know, we're trying to revolutionize something, um, something that's, that, that could have a broad based impact. Right. And so you've got to kind of like push yourself into that future model a little bit and experiment and, and sort of figure out what it feels like. And so David, when I walked in, um, said, listen, you know, no phones and no BDRs. And I was like, well, what? Tools <laughs> <laughs> in the toolbox that you took, just took out. And so, and so I sat back and I, and I sort of like, okay, well, what is he trying to achieve? And I got it. And I said, okay, got it. Like the, the impersonal communication that doesn't lend itself to a good buying experience. It doesn't add much value for the buyer is what David is trying to push us to try to discover how do we engage at, at the buyer's level for the benefit of the buyer rather than for the benefit of the organization. I did a, um, I did a quick talk at a, at a CIO conference here in Boston recently, and I started my talk by saying, okay, let me, let me ask you guys, how many of you uh, have bought products that started with a cold call? <laughs> Nobody really raised their hand. And I said, hey, let me ask you, how many times do you, you know, when, when, when a salesperson reaches out to you and you're in that like, impersonal sales sequence or sales cadence email loop how many of you know when you're in that loop and everybody raised their hand and i said great and so it doesn't sound like an effective way to engage now let me ask you how many people have salespeople in their organizations they all raised their hand i said and 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 how many people follow that model how many people have salespeople that follow that model in their organization everybody raised their hand i said that's what drift is trying to change at the end of the day we've given a bunch of tools that that uh, that raise the activity level that make us feel good to some degree as sales leaders, um, but really have very low impact and, and in fact have a negative impact to some degree uh, on the buyer experience. And what we're trying to test is, can we have a sales process and a buyer experience that has at the center of it, the buyer, not the company's interest, and still um, be able to qualify, gain traction, and be in control of the sales process? Sounds amazing. Because <laughs> I just remember, um, you know, cutting my teeth years and years ago in the tech industry, I, you know, I'd have to make 60 dials a day. Mm -hmm. You know, and you were making these dials to people that are like, you know, they're cold calls and they didn't expect to hear from you, never mind magically need what you're selling. 
<laughs> right? And he, well, here's the num the reason why we have been told over over time and time again to play the numbers game, which is the email blasting and the cold call blasting, is that your capture strategies are insufficient, right? Meaning they're not likely to reply to your email. They're not likely to pick up the phone and have a conversation with you that's meaningful. But what they are likely to do is go to your website if you've got enough interest through that through those either email or or, or your phone message. Um, but the problem is when they do go to your site, they quickly look around and and have a and have some kind of level of understanding of what you do and probably make some level of decision on whether or not they want to engage. Your capture strategy on your site is insufficient to get them there uh, to capture them there. Meaning they actually have to fill out a form. Um, to be able to to engage with you and give you the signal that they're interested, which most of them don't do. And so um, in a lot of cases, actually, companies use uh, Leadlander or something else, which are good tools, but um, the proximity to when the visitor comes um, is latent and it doesn't give you the buying signal. So a lot of companies, what they do is they look at, oh, who visited the site? Oh, that guy who I reached out to two days ago on email or I gave him a couple of cold calls, he came to the site. That's a buying signal and everybody doubles down on engage, trying to engage with that person. But what might have happened is that visitor came to your site and decided, yeah, this stuff isn't for me. I have no idea why this person's reaching out to me. But you don't have that understanding because you don't have any engagement model to understand that at that moment in time. And that's what Drift is trying to solve. When you get somebody to your site, engage with them. Um, and that could be with humans or it could be with bots. And just say, hey, what were you hoping you to achieve here? How could I help you? And give them something in their journey to pull them in a little bit more. And what happens, either if the bot or the human does that and put the customer first, the guard goes down and they, they have a little bit more confidence and trust to engage with the person in a more uh, uh, honest way about what they're trying to achieve because they're not trying to put the seller first, they're putting the buyer first. Got it, okay. So David cancels like no phones, no BDRs. So, you know, there's this like, maybe a playbook, you know, you've had these multiple levels of success in different uh, companies, different stages, yeah. and maybe you're, you've got this playbook that you've developed through your years of experience yet David throws you for a loop and you're like, okay, I have to pivot and still, you know, build out this sales function for a company that's raised over a hundred million in funding. Right. Yeah. So, so how, what does that look like? What does the sales function look like? Yeah, so we started with, um, just engaging live with our visitors. I think last year we're on the journey of like, what's the repeatable, um, what's the repeatable pitch? Who's the repeatable ideal customer profile? Who's a buyer? Um, what's what's the repeatable value that we bring to the organization? And what's that what's that translate in from an ASP perspective? And we sort of knocked those off one at a time last year with the team of you know eight or ten that we had at, at the time, and. Um, we found that repeatability and now this year we're sort of doubling down on it. And what it looks like is not a, not unlike a traditional sales organization. We don't have territories yet, although we're getting there. Um, and um, we have leads from a varying degree of sources. Our highest, uh, our highest converting leads are our CQLs, which are what we call, call conversation qualified leads, meaning that someone answered some questions either that the bot asked or that a human asked and they were enough uh, and we have enough information to call that qualified based on the demographic and the behavior. Um, and then we have our traditional PQLs, much like a, a lot of other companies have, um, where people are registering for the product or downloading a portion of the product to test. Uh, and then we have our typical marketing qualified leads, just like, again, others like blog or, or webinar uh, sourced, uh, sourced leads. And we have a traditional inbound lead, lead uh, funnel team. We have a little bit of a hunting team that uh, converts um, 
uh, leads that didn't initially convert uh, that we captured and, and hunts a little bit uh, towards targeted accounts. And we have a small enterprise team that's, at, that's, uh, that's out there looking at strategic accounts as well. And we're discovering that there's a, there's a series of affiliate marketing customers out there that want to um, uh, want to resell uh, some of uh, Drift solutions to their uh, to their organizations and customers to be able to uh, give that additional layer of capture um, that that the marketing um, affiliates provide to their organizations and their customers. So we've got a couple of channels right now that are working pretty well. Um, it's, like I said, though, from a from a sales process perspective, is probably the difference than the structure itself. The structure is probably you'd walk in and go look so smells feels like probably any other sales inside sales organization. Um, I think that there's a couple of differences uh, in the team itself though, and that is that uh, we really tried to drive the culture to be supportive, not dog eat dog. So uh, we really um, make sure that um, people are um, supporting one another, one another's success. In addition to that, like here, reps actually go up to other reps and go, hey, this looks like it's a lead in your name. It doesn't look like you've touched it in a while. Mind if I take it? And they'll either say yes or no, and they work all that stuff out because I demand that we're not going to have this cutthroat organization that kind of pits one rep against another from a success point of view. I don't believe in that kind of model, and uh, I don't think it's very uh, I don't think it's very beneficial to organizations and or to the individuals over time. Sure, we're competitive. Sure, we all want to win. Sure, we have little contests. Uh, against one another, uh, both pods or reps and all that sort of stuff. Um, but when it comes down to the DNA of su supporting each other, that's there 100%. As you're building out the sales team, like what, what are you generally looking for in terms of the, the type of person that you'd want to hire? Yeah, I, what we look for is not somebody that's like uh, akin to what I just mentioned is like somebody that's not just what's in it for them. Um, because and it's more than just a cultural piece that I just spoke about. It's more about we're building, we're growing so fast and we're building an organization um, that's that's going to be, you know, a pretty dominant, we believe, uh, a business uh, on the scene very, very shortly, if it isn't already. And we need people that have to have aspirations beyond just their own, right? They have to have the aspiration of building something unique and potentially a once in a lifetime company and have a hand and care about um, what that looks like over time and not just in their discrete function. So what I mean by that is uh, our, our sales reps take ownership and responsibility for the success of the product, the success of the customer, and the success of our marketing programs in any degree or way that they can. And that means giving feedback, uh, giving ideas, um, helping, uh, helping promote uh, something that either the product or the marketing team is doing. So they do a lot of work outside the realm of just like following up with leads from a responsibility standpoint as being a good sort of corporate citizen in, in, in support of the overall mission. And I'll give you the example of, you know, people ask us all the time, how the hell did you guys do that LinkedIn takeover thing that you did a couple of months ago or whatever it was? Yeah, that was cool. And um, we just, we said, well, we asked people to, to do it. We asked, <laughs> we asked them to do, put up a video on their LinkedIn with this kind of message. And they right. did. And they like, what do you mean? And I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, we just asked people to do it and they did it. Right. And so that's where the success comes from is like, I believe, and it's not just on the sales team, we're hiring people that are trying to build something special and have that in view. And of course, their personal interest and personal growth matters. 
but it also matters that the company grows and that we support the corporate mission, which I think a lot of other companies struggle to try to connect those two for people. And they come up with vision statements and all this other stuff. But I think we actually really embody it here, which is probably one of the, Logman was pretty close to this as well. Um, although the way Drift does it in the fashion, we have ownership, like people will do things outside of their own role in conjunction or after hours to support the overall mission outside of the discrete role, which is amazing. And you've talked about this already, but it always seemed from a very early days of Drift that culture was a like a really critical component to building a long-standing company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what, like, what is the culture at Drift? What is, what is it like? Uh, it's intense, uh, and but it's intense in a good way. It, there, it, I, it's hard to describe other than like we have, I believe, a really um, high-performing organization. And so, if you think about I don't know, think about a, the pit stop in an F1, in an F1 racing team, and what that feels like when the race car rolls in, and there's 30 guys around that car doing their one job and hustling and making it happen really, really in, in, a, in rapid uh, sequence. It feels kind of like that. Um, it, it feels like you're surrounded by high-performing professionals, and you're working at the highest level possible. And in you're being demanded of more than you ever have before, but we're achieving amazing things. So it pulls you even uh, harder, almost like gravity pulls you a, a little bit harder than maybe you you would have otherwise. And so for me, uh, and, and, and what I believe is the experience for a lot of reps is, I think they're doing things that they knew they were capable of, but were never demanded of. And that's what's super exciting for me. And for, I would think most of the team here at Drift uh, we have, uh, just like many companies, we have a bunch of principles that we hold uh, people accountable to, but they're, but they're both um, uh, professional uh, principles, but also personal principles that help you um, in your life beyond just drift. And so we're trying to be obviously good corporate citizens, but um, it's not just about like the success of the company and we don't care about you as an individual at all, right? And so I think that the the combination of those things really makes it a unique place high performing it's about the individual but team comes first right so i think that um it's just been it culture is always one of those things it's always hard to describe i'm one of those people that i find it a little bit hard to describe as well um if you listen to the podcast uh seeking wisdom that david and david do um they probably do a much better job than i do <laughs> now the, as you're building out your sales team like what's uh what's the plan as far as like like what's the size now what's the plan in terms of growth yeah um <clears throat> we don't get into too much of the of the numbers but uh it's pretty it's pretty quick growth uh and so uh the the team that's here today i think the challenge there is like you're an old timer after you've been here like two quarters <laughs> it was that fast and so um and it for the for the individual salespeople, it it I think it's probably hard because like you've really got to adjust to almost a completely different dynamic. Like when you're in most organizations and you're growing from, I don't know, like at Log Me and we grew uh from 2006, there was probably 20 reps, and then in 2009 there's probably 60 or 70. Um, it took two, three years to get there, right? So you had some time to like feel out what the new world looked like and what your new role was and things grew at a rapid pace, but you, it was manageable. Um, we're doing that in months, not years here. So that's the, I think it's a little bit of a challenge, but it's something that's 
like I, I'd re- like I would rather wouldn't rather be a part of a slower uh, a slower moving organization, right? Like I want to be challenged as much as I can be, and I think most of the reps here feel the same way. Like, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's the most amazing thing I've been a part of. So uh, I think we kind of have both sides of the equation there. Does someone like need sales experience to be part of your team? Like, would you consider people that don't have direct sales experience in tech? We try to, to we try to keep uh, uh, people that have had some tech selling experience, but we've got now a program um, where you got you. We were we're hiring so quickly that we really had to come up with a better way than like you know the traditional. Oh, you'll just shadow this person for the next two weeks, and we'll give you some training, and then you'll be fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't work in this environment given the 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 pace that we're running. And so what we decided to do is we hired us, excuse me, a sales leader that is responsible for what we call drift bootcamp and you come in and you remain in a pod of uh, new folks uh, for a period of time until you graduate out and the graduation rate uh, is like 92 percent or something like that and what you have to do to graduate is you have to have built have had x number of conversations x number of demos x number of pipeline created and x number of uh of booked business and so we, what happens and what helps with that is that we isolate and grow the new burgeoning salespeople, but we don't distract the rest of the organization with that. In addition, we're always graduating new people into the organization and they're already productive. And so that, that pace, that, that's really lend itself for us to grow at the pace we're growing at because we just couldn't have done it. Um, without being able, you know, in the traditional sense of just like, hey, we're going to hire a bunch of people and you're going to have a mentor and, and you're going to shadow. It just takes too long, right? And it distracts the rest of the organization who's productive um, and, and slows you down. I'm assuming the bar is high for your team. What, what can someone expect during the interview process? Like what's your you know, selection criteria that ultimately lands, you know, someone being on your team? Yeah, sure. We we look at we we clearly look at your background and, and look at success and um, you know, with someone with very minimal sales experience, and we're even getting to the point where we'll hire folks that haven't had a closing role but 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 have done some BDR work. Um, we're starting to consider those and test that uh, that sort of cohort a little bit. Um, but what we expect in the sales process is, or in the interview process, is less about like, hey, tell me. Um, Tell me your sales process. How do you, do you handle an objection? Or how do you handle a difficult customer? Tell me what your teammates would say about you or your leader would say about you, which are all those sort of traditional, um, in my opinion, sort of BS questions that people ask. Um, we care more about like what drives you as an individual. What do you want to achieve in, in your career? Why did you choose sales? Um, what does good look like to you? And then we try to dig into a little bit of how much of the, the principles that we have at Drift are embodied in you as a person already. Um, because what we can't teach is sort of uh, of those principles and we can't teach those intangibles. What we can teach is how to sell drift, how to talk about drift, how to handle an objection when someone gives you an objection to drift. Like that's easy stuff. But what I can't do is change you as an individual. I can't change your personality traits or, or what you think is important, right? So that's really what we test for. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. If um, if I'm a founder and I'm looking to set up sales, what what advice would you give to founders? Um, you know, you, you talked about the different types of sales models that you've uh, seen now, from e-commerce to enterprise to now the the drift model. 
So what advice would you give to founders who are looking to set up a sales function? They just you know close the new round of fun, fun, funding and it's time to ramp up sales. Yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, I, I defer to the experts, you know. Uh, <laughs> I listen to Nathan Lemkin a lot and I listen to, to Saster a lot too and, and understand like what people are thinking about in the, in the, in the world of SaaS. And typically what I hear and what I see uh, are founders uh, hire a sales leader too late a lot of times. And so there's a couple of things there. So it depends on where you are in your journey and your go-to-market strategy and, you know, the, the triggers of go-to-market fit and the, the repeatability of your offering. Um, you got to have, you know, salespeople right away. First of all, founders should be able to sell their product and, and, and be able to do those calls and understand a little bit of product market fit, especially if they're tech founders, so that they can drive um, uh, the customer-centric model back into their their uh, production organization. In addition to that, they get a good sense for um, what the buyer might look like, and you should hire a couple of salespeople to see if you can find a little bit of repeatability there and get some revenue in the door. Very short, shortly thereafter, you got to hire a sales leader. And so I think, you know, at Drift, I was probably, you know, David and Elias would say that they were probably three or four months late, not because of them, but because of me. I was still at Dine at the time, and they were trying to pull me out of there early. Um, so, um, but they probably would have said they would have loved to have had me six months earlier um, to get a good start at 2017. I started in January of 2017. They would have loved me to sort of ramp up a little bit sooner than that. But, you know, a sales leader, the sales leader that you're looking for also is um, probably a little bit more of a blue collar salesperson uh, or sales leader, one that doesn't mind getting on the phone calls, getting their hands dirty, doing much of the yeoman's work. Uh, that needs to be done because what happens a lot of times is you hire the sales leader that might be the right sales leader for 30 to 40 million dollars or 10 to 20 million dollars which is you know scaling the organization and what happens a lot of times uh, are those people uh, really sort of at the very early stages um, lean on the salespeople to give them the feedback that they need to figure out product market fit and that what invariably happens is you're relying on individuals that don't have as much experience as a sales leader does. And so you've got this layer of filtering going on to whatever degree that salesperson can see, hear, or smell the buying signals and get that information back. As a sales leader at that early stage, you've got to have your most experienced salesperson on those calls because they're the ones that can decipher uh, some things that a lot of early day salespeople probably just can't. And that's why you really need them on the phone uh, if you really want to figure out uh, that sales model more quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like as companies go through different stages, you know, marketing too, right? When you first start out building a marketing function, that leader needs to be hands-on too. So definitely works uh, across all functions of the company, engineering, product management. So that's definitely a, a, an important trait. Well, I guess it's no coincidence based on this conversation that uh, Drift's annual conference is called Hypergrowth, right? You know, the, <laughs> you're pretty much in, the, in a hypergrowth machine right now. Yeah. Um, so I attended last year's conference and it was definitely one of the conferences that, you know, it was just thumping energy, you know, all the, I think every, I don't know if every single employee from drift was there, but I saw pretty much a colossal sea of drift employees out there, you know, just making you feel comfortable that you're engaging in this conference. There's a DJ playing like, you know, just beats in the background and the energy of the speakers was just something that you didn't see a lot in Boston. It's usually like a panel conversation and, you know, it's just like, right another conference, but it hypergrowth. I'm like, this is awesome. Right. So, um, 
I'm looking forward to this year's event because I know when I listen to Seek and Wisdom that it's never going to be a lesser experience. It's only going to be much greater. So no pressure on Dave Gerhardt. But uh, no, so, pressure on Dave Gerhardt. <laughs> oh, that's what I mean. There's a crazy amount of pressure on him, right? So no pressure. But uh, so the the East Coast event because this is going to be happen on both coasts now. So the that's East right. Coast events all in the same month too. <laughs> so September fourth is That's the right. Boston event. Boston at the, at the is, I think it's TD Bank, whatever the pavilion is that's down by um, by the waterfront. By the water, yeah. Right. So it's a cool venue. Yep. And, and then on the West Coast, September 24th is the San Francisco right. event. Right. And we have people like Jocko Willink who spoke uh, or who wrote Extreme Ownership and is about to launch his next book called um, The Dichotomy of Leadership. I got the pleasure of going to his conference uh, just a couple of months ago and you are going to be blown away. Uh, talk about inspiring. It's just incredible, um, the stories that this guy has and the learnings that he has both from being a Navy SEAL, but also being in combat and in, in some of the toughest situations possible. It sort of just like puts in perspective, how, you know, the hard days that we have here in the office. Like it's never going to be that hard ever. And what I like about the conference is it's not just the same type of speaker. Like you just mentioned, you know, former Navy SEAL, like that's just an interesting story to hear and very inspiring. And, you know, the lineup this year also includes Casey Nestad, who obviously is YouTube fame and yep. you know, pretty much uh, created the, that whole category. And then you got George Foreman, the third. So there's just going to be so many great, great conversations to listen to. I can't wait. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, I think the the whole point is to both inspire, learn, and back to the seeking wisdom concept, right? It's no it's no uh, coincidence that 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 our podcast is seeking wisdom. We are all on our learning journey, and it's just like, listen, this this industry really is. We're all it's still in its infancy stages, uh, and we're all still learning. That you know, there's always that sort of imposter uh, syndrome that we all have because it's. Um, uh, there's always somebody that knows a little bit more, but we're all on this sort of same journey of like learning this new way. And we all got to share our ideas. We can't be closed down to it. We got to help each other. And it, we're all going to be better for it. We're all going to work at different companies over the lifespan of our career. And so what we're committed to is helping everybody level up. Amen to that. Anything you'd like to uh, share with our audience? Yeah, like like I said, we're on a rocket ship right now. Um, we'd love to have uh, people, like-minded people, come and join. If you want to be part of a movement, not just part of a, you know, a fast-growing company, which a lot of people sort of tout, we are that, of course. But we're part of a movement. We believe we're part of a movement, and we feel like this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and a career-defining um, opportunity. And so, for people that are committed uh, to their own personal growth and success. Those are the types of folks we want to have on our team. Um, so, so reach out to me either through LinkedIn or or come to our uh, come to our site on the careers page. We have a, a careers bot, so engage with that and, uh, <laughs> and give us uh, give us your information and engage with us and 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 come and join uh, join the rocket ship, as they say. And obviously, um, you know this conversation focused on your team, but Drift is hiring across all functions. They're they're just hiring lots and lots of people right now, so you can oh, see and in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. On both coasts. So, well, Armin, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate you sharing your words of wisdom with our audience. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.